0: Turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to continue to study Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, the passage that is the account of the temptation of Jesus. Now, as you're turning there, let me ask a question. Have any of you guys, kids perhaps, even adults, have you met, ever met anybody really famous? You met somebody famous before? Rowan? Who have you met? I can't wait to hear who Rowan has met that's famous. He pointed to his daddy. Yay, all right, Rowan, that's right. Okay. Anybody else met anyone famous? Oh, yeah, Olivia got to meet Matt grievers, Olympic gold medalist. That was cool. Okay. I don't know if I've really met that many famous people. Um, I did meet one person, my friend and I. Well, it wasn't really, I'm sure this person that we met has no recollection of this whatsoever. So it was just a friend of mine that ran into someone famous. But it's nobody you guys would know. This guy's name is General Frank Vargas. Now, there's one person here who would know who General Frank Vargas is. That's Mr. Elias here. Because Mr. Elias is from Ecuador. General Frank Vargas was the general of the Ecuadorian Air Force. Well... The encounter that me and my friend had with General Frank Vargas actually ended up being a little bit frightening. And let me explain why. You see, General Frank Vargas at one point decided he wasn't very happy with the way the president was running the country and the way things were going. You know, wanted more um, benefits and things for the, for the Air Force. And he decided he would just, well, take over the country. Why not? Right? And so he's in Manta, and he takes over the Air Force Base in Manta. And then he heads up to Quito, which was the city where we were at, and decides that, well, I'm just going to take over the airport in Quito. The airports in Ecuador are also um, Air Force bases. So the airport, the the public airport was also the Air Force base. And so he takes over the airport, and as soon as the army um, finds out that he's taking over the airport, because the army was on the side of the president... They send in the tanks towards the airport, and I remember being in Ecuador, sitting in a fast food restaurant, um, multi burger. You remember multi burger? You know, I'm eating a multi burger. I don't know what all the multi stuff was in it, but it was a burger of some sort. And I'm eating a multi burger, and there's a tank that goes by the window of the restaurant headed towards the airport. My parents said, "Kids, it's probably time for us to go home." So we got in the car and headed home. But my curiosity was piqued, and we get to our uh, our building, which was a seven-story, it was a twelve-story building. We lived on the seventh story. So, my brother and I go over to the window to try to see what's happening. We can begin to hear the popping sounds: pop, 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 pop. At that point, my parents say, "Kids, get back from the windows." Apparently, there was a coup attempt. Henardal Frank Vargas had tried to um, well overtake the government, um, but the army won. They captured Henardal Frank Vargas there at the airport in Quito, killed several of his um, air force buddies, and took him into custody. Well, the cool thing in Ecuador is, as long as you have an engaging personality, you can almost do anything. And Frank Vargas convinced the people that were guarding him to follow him, and therefore he is, well, actually convinced them to, to, this is what it was, he convinced them to uh, then work with some of his other friends to then capture the president. They kidnapped the president of Ecuador and demanded Vargas' release They kidnapped the president, killed his bodyguards, demanded Vargas release. The president, who was, his name was Leon at the time, he signs the document saying that they wouldn't press any charges against Frank Vargas. So, now, that gives you an idea who General Frank Vargas was. Also, I think in 2000, he was voted the most macho general in Latin America, okay? So that's General Frank Vargas. Now, this was years later. Vargas was free, you know, you try to overthrow the government, you know, just get the president to sign a document. He's actually running for president a couple of years later. And uh, my buddy and I are walking down through a shopping mall, and we see Frank Vargas. I mean, only in Latin America can you be shopping and run into someone who tried to overthrow the government, right? And so you're there, and there's Frank Vargas. And I said, look, that's Vargas. And my friend didn't believe me. And so he yells out this sort of mocking word And says, hey, Frankie, like that. And and another Frank Vargas turns around and gives us a stare that I thought, we're dead. There's going to be like commandos pop out from behind the shelving units here in the shopping center, and we're dead. We're going to be found in some sort of communist concentration camp, dead. Okay, now he just turned around and walked away. But I remember how frightened I was to look at this man who was an insurrectionist. He was a rebel. He was a leader of the rebels. An insurrectionist who tried to overthrow the powers. And I stared at him face to face, and I was scared to death. Especially since my buddy here decided to be a smart aleck. And I was scared. And I thought of that story because here Jesus is, in the wilderness, also staring eye to eye with an insurrectionist. Who is much more frightening than Frank Vargas much much more macho than Frank Vargas. And Jesus is staring him in the eyes as he has this war in warfare in the wilderness, this battle, this showdown. And Jesus doesn't back down. And for our sake and on our behalf, he stands there and takes the full brunt of this insurrectionist's uh, artillery of temptations. And that's the story we're looking at today. We're going to continue to walk through the temptations of Jesus Christ. And um, I think sometimes when we look at these temptations, we are, we are tempted to think that they don't have that much to do with us, but we would be wrong. I want us to see and savor Jesus Christ in this episode of Jesus' life, but I also want us to see and savor what Christ has done on our behalf Now, I also want us to see how Satan works his tactics to try to bring us down. So let's read Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Matthew 4, verse 1. And we'll read through verse 11. The scriptures say that then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone Satan, for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold angels came and were ministering. To him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I really beg you, Lord, to come now and to um, make sure your word goes forth correctly and that it does not return void. Father, the weight of this passage of Scripture on all of us, I believe, is pretty heavy because we know these temptations. They may not come in the same forms that they came for Jesus, but we know these temptations. And we fail over and over and over again. And so we look at Jesus, and Father, we want to see and savor what he accomplished. And in doing so, put our hope, all of our hope, in what he did. In the victory that he won in the wilderness on our behalf. So God, as we go through this, keep us from any sort of legalistic list making that will cause us to somehow turn away from Jesus, but instead let us see the danger, let us see the venom that Satan spews when he tempts us, and in doing so, run to our Savior and trust in him, and to know that you father have provided a way out and that way out is through jesus christ so we pray all this in his name and in his name alone amen as i said earlier these temptations i want us to be careful not to read these temptations and think somehow they have nothing to do with us in one regard these temptations are specifically designed for jesus for example No one in us in here has ever been tempted, as far as I'm aware of, I don't think anyone in here has ever been tempted to turn stones into bread. Now, I am able to turn bread into stones when I cook. But but the real temptation of turning stones into bread, that's unique for Jesus. But at its core, there is something else there. You see, at its core is a temptation common to man. At its core is a temptation for us not to trust the Father for provision. That's the core of this temptation. Don't trust your Father. Don't believe what He said. Don't believe who you are in Him. And don't trust Him. We may not be tempted to cast ourselves from the highest pinnacle of the temple and therefore test the Father's protection and publicly vindicate ourselves. But the heart of that temptation is always pounding in us as we are tempted to force God to do things on our terms. We are looking for security on our terms. And though, so we test the Father instead of trusting the Father. And I think the same thing holds true about this final temptation we're going to look at today. It's unique to Christ in one respect. But at its core it's a temptation common to you and me. And I think everyone that's here has been here for the previous two messages. Or most have. But this is the third ...message in this sort of a mini-series within a series as we go just through the temptations here. I knew it was going to take us more than one message, uh, but I didn't know it was going to take us three. But it's important for us to see here and savor the truth that Jesus has in every respect been tempted as we are... ...yet without sin. We must believe that truth. We must believe that he had to be made like us, like his brothers, in every respect. And thus he suffered when he was tempted... And because he did that, because he suffered the temptations, he's able to help us when we're being tempted. If Jesus cannot fully identify with us, he cannot fully save us. So here is Jesus identifying with his people, and more than that, standing in his people's place as a substitute, taking the full brunt of the devil's fury on our behalf, undergoing horrific temptation, yet never sinning, living a perfect righteousness on our behalf. Jesus was a real man. These are real temptations. I think the other thing we're tempted to do when we look at these is think that, well, that's not much of a temptation. Jesus could have easily withstood those after all he's God. But these are not softballs that, that Satan's throwing at Jesus. These are these are fastballs. These are flaming darts that are coming at Jesus. These are real temptations for a real man. And Satan gives his full onslaught of tempting force and ferocity toward Jesus. As we've seen the past two weeks, all three temptations are directly related to what we believe about who we are, about who our Father is, and about what our Father has said. Who we are, Satan wants to attack your belief, your understanding of who you are, who he is, who who your Father is, I should say, and what your Father has said. So Satan directly challenges God's spoken word. When God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, he is now in these temptations challenging that word. And if you are in Christ, this is a glorious truth. If you are in Christ, then that statement is said about you as well. That you are his beloved child with whom he is well pleased not because of anything you've done or any merit on your behalf, but because Jesus Christ has lived perfect righteousness on your behalf. Therefore, God looks at you and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And your whole Christian life, Satan will be attacking that statement. He doesn't really love you. He's not really a loving father. You're not really a child of God. And did God really say? So, we had three points, three main points as we were going through the, the series here. And then some subpoints that I had thrown in there. The first one was this. The enemy tempted Christ and tempts us to serve our appetites instead of trusting our Father. That's what the, that first temptation was all about. The second temptation was this. The enemy tempted Christ and tempts us to seek security in signs and shortcuts instead of resting in our Father. And finally today, number three, the enemy tempted Christ and tempts us to seize a kingdom now instead of seeking first the kingdom of our father to seize a kingdom now instead of seeking the kingdom of our father verse 8 says the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory now this is a sim- this is similar and it's tied into the very last temptation. If you'll recall, in the last temptation, part of what Satan was tempting Jesus to do when he says jump off of this temple is he was tempting him to take a shortcut to glory. Remember, I told you that the many of the many of the rabbis of the day, and you can find this even in the Jewish literature of the day, that said and believed that Jesus, I mean, that the Messiah would come to Israel at the pinnacle of the temple. That's where he would appear. And so if Jesus were to stand on that pinnacle and jump off in the middle of the day with all those people there in Jerusalem, right there at the temple, which was the center point of life in Jerusalem, if he'd have done that, and those angels would have swooped in and saved him like Satan was tempting him to to do, well then, he would have had glory, fame. Instantly, people would have bowed down and worshipped him as the Messiah, It was a shortcut to glory. And again, in this text today, Satan's saying something similar. Right here, right now, Jesus, there's power. There's prestige. There are possessions. If you'll simply bow down to me. Now this is a very real temptation for Christ and it's a very real temptation for us. We too are tempted to take shortcuts to glory. It's a temptation to rule now with power, with prestige. And with possessions. But why is it such a real temptation for us? It's a real temptation because in all actuality we were created to rule. We were created to rule. We were created for glory. Man was created to rule. Part of the DNA of our being image bearers of Christ is that we were created to rule. Adam's mandate was one of ruling the earth. Genesis 1.26 this is the original mandate God gave to mankind. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let us let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock. And over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The creation mandate for mankind that was that as image bearers of God, man was to rule the earth. Man was to multiply and spread the glory of God across the face of the earth, imaging forth God. Ruling the earth under the loving rule of God, the kingdom of God. This was God's very good plan. But man fell. He rebelled against the king of the universe and thus lost his right to rule. And creation itself, corrupted by sin, became wild and untamed. But man, still bearing the image of God, albeit a sin-warped image, still has within him a calling... And a desire to rule. He desires to reign. And that desire is not a bad one in and of itself. But under the defiling influence of sin, that desire is aimed in the wrong direction. It's aimed at our idolatrous self-exaltation and not at God's glorification. And therefore that desire to reign and rule has become a liability. A liability that Satan himself aims to take fully advantage of. You see, Jesus desires to rule as well. As the creator, he has the right to rule. As the sinless God-man, he deserves to rule. As the heir of Abraham, the the promised reign and inheritance of the earth belongs to him. And it's the father's desire for him to rule. Psalm 2 says this. This is a messianic psalm. It says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This was God's promise to the Messiah. Ask me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Perhaps Satan even had this psalm in mind as he comes and speaks to Jesus. We've already seen that Satan knows the scriptures. He knows them better than we do. And his words sound eerily similar to Psalm 2. He says to Jesus, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Again, Satan is violating God's word. Satan's trying to distort the Psalm 2 fatherly promise. Satan hates and distorts God's word. God's word is truth. And Satan is a liar. And he shows his nature as a liar even in this text here. Matter of fact, in Luke's account... In Luke's account, verse 6 of chapter 4 of Luke, it says this. This is Satan's words to Jesus. To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Satan tells Jesus it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. Well, this is a half-truth. And of course, a half-truth is a complete lie. For Satan is only a ruler on a leash. He has no power except what's been given to him. And the only reason he has any rule over this earth is because Adam capitulated our rule over to him. He is, as Paul says, the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Jesus even calls him the ruler of this world. And later the Apostle John says that the world lies in the power of the evil one. But the devil's rule is illegitimate. It is limited. It is parasitic. And it's destined for destruction. The creation itself, nature, creation itself, hates this usurper. And according to Romans 8, creation itself awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is waiting for us to reign again in Christ. But in order to bring us back to our position as God-exalting rulers and back to glory... We had to be rescued and made heirs with Christ. So Christ Jesus stepped down from glory and made himself nothing. Taking on human flesh. Taking on the form of a servant. Becoming fully obedient to his father. Obedient even to death on the cross. So that Jesus at this moment in this story was making himself nothing. But Satan is tempting him to seize his reign now. Instead of waiting for his father's exaltation later so we need to see the first sub point i have for your notes there is that the enemy will try to get us to exalt ourselves by grabbing power prestige and possessions now your notes are a little bit different i was struggling with this sermon really a lot even up until about nine twenty, <laughs> um and so i changed the wording The enemy will try to get us to exalt ourselves by grabbing power, prestige, and possessions now. At first glance, this is simply a temptation about instant power and prestige. It's yours, Jesus. It's here for the taking. And what man wouldn't be tempted by that? Especially because it's in our DNA to rule. Imagine Jesus' situation. He is from very humble beginnings in the flesh, in his incarnation. He's from very humble beginnings. He was born to a young teenage girl who was poor, who was marrying the town handyman, who was also poor. They were from the most despised city in all of of Israel. It was a despised possession a, a, a despised position that his father was in. A despised um, city that they were from. And Jesus grew up in that. He grew up in poverty. And now here he is standing on a mountain. And all of that glory of all those nations, all the richness, all the power, it's just being laid right there for him to see. The only thing I can compare it to, and I got this idea out of Russell Moore's book uh, called Tempted and Tried, which is the best book I've ever read on this passage of Scripture. I highly, highly encourage you to read it. It's been very influential to me. But um, Russell Moore compares it to a, like, a, like a, a, a country boy going to the city for the first time. And you walk in and you're just sort of, whoa, taken aback. Well, I, I compared it more to an MK coming back to the United States because that's my experience. Now, in Ecuador, and Ecuador has become much more westernized now than it was when I was there. But there were certain things we didn't have and certain things about the United States that just overwhelm you when you come back. Now, Heather being an M.K. from Western Africa, it was even much more so when those kids would come back to the States. But you come back, you're in this, in, in this part of the world that just doesn't have all the amenities, doesn't have all the nice things. And you've learned to live that way and you're fine with that. And you come back here and there's so much wealth. So much power, and everything's so big, and everything's so nice, and the the roads actually have lines, and people actually stay in the lines. And all this stuff here in the United States, that just sort of blows your mind. And as an MK, you come back, and and some missionary kids, only about 50% of, and actually there have been studies done on this, about 50% of missionary kids adapt back into U.S. culture well, and 50% kind of go off the deep end and because the adjustment is so difficult and how do they how do many of them go off the deep end they go on, off the deep end by gorging themselves with everything america has to offer they're now unleashed look at all this stuff look at look at the money look at the young ladies look at this world here this united states of america And we see the big country when we come back and are almost overwhelmed. And so here's this country boy, Jesus, standing. And boom, not just one nation, but all the nations of the earth are presented to him. Laid out there on a banquet table. Look at all of this. This is a very real temptation. But Jesus didn't have the internal corruption that we have. Although Jesus, too, had the desire to reign and the right to reign... His desire to reign was perfectly in line with his father's will. It wasn't a rebellious, insurrectionist type of desire like ours. His pure and perfect desire to reign comes from his full submission to his father. But we share Adam and Eve's disease. When Adam and Eve heard the serpent's silky promise of a better reign and of a better rule, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, Adam and Eve gave in they fell they tried to shrug off god and reign outside of god's loving rule that's us and satan holds out that tantalizing temptation for us and we all every single one of us you me all of us have caved to this temptation. Jesus withstands, but we quickly succumb. Our attempts to reign and grab power now are seen in multiple ways. Now you may be looking at this text and be thinking of the obvious ones. The dictator who's ruling that country with tyranny. Or you may be thinking about all the wars that just are a demonstration of men's desire to have power. Or maybe terrorist acts. Or financial scandals. That CEO who bilked a bunch of people from their, of their money. Or political fights. This is the season, right? To look at the power of politics. So maybe that's in your mind as you think here of these temptations. But at the heart of this temptation... Well, I should say, some of the things we fail out are tied to the same temptation. For this temptation is at the heart of our arguments with our spouses... It's at the heart of our desire not to just guide our kids' lives, but dictate their lives. It's at the heart of our belittling word about the boss around the water cooler. It's at the heart of our overwhelming anger at that shopper who has 30 items in the 15 or less express lane. It's at the heart of our complaining about the slow hymns that we sing. And it's at the heart of the other group that's complaining about those noisy praise songs. It's at the heart of our desire to be right and rejoicing when others are wrong. It's at the heart of our desire to be quick to fight over theological secondaries while ignoring the high call to unity. It's at the heart of our tight grip on our money or our loose grip on our money when it becomes a means to something we desire even more. And on and on and on we all want to rule and reign and it manifests itself in so many ways and we want to rule we want to have power prestige and possession because we all suffer from the cancer of pride pride is the cancer at the center of these temptations satan is the father of pride he shows his pride off in this passage here doesn't he he says i give it to whom i will Satan doesn't have that power. I, he says I all the time, I give it to whom I will. I rule, I reign, I give, I take. These were the words screeching from his hideous mouth when he was cast out of heaven. Isaiah 47, 10. This is the Lord speaking about Satan. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am ...and there is no one besides me. I am... ...and there's no one... ...besides me. My friends, we are infected with an... ...I am... ...and there's no one besides me... ...cancer. It's called self-exaltation... ...or narcissism. We live in the most self-exalting... ...narcissistic culture... ...in the history of mankind. I mean... We live in a culture that takes its own picture in a mirror with a $500 phone. If that isn't narcissistic, I don't know what is. I am, and there's no one besides me. We pridefully rule over our own little universes. We reign. It it has come out in several studies now because it's becoming a big issue and the secular world has taken notice of it and the secular world is doing studies about this, but Christians have been talking about this for quite a while and that is we have a major crisis with young men in our culture today. A massive crisis. Many, many, many young men are addicted to two things. Number one, video games, and number two, pornography. Both are an attempt to rule. You can rule the video game. It's your own little world that you've created. I have felt and fallen for that temptation, haven't you? I remember right when we were, it's a common problem for young married couples. I mean, I have heard it so many times. Just this week, in this office, a young couple telling me he plays video games all the time. And I can't stand there and be proud because I did the same thing. Now mine wasn't the the shoot 'em up games. Mine were the sports games. I had this game, this FIFA soccer game. Oh, it was awesome! And I'd come home from work and I'd go sit at the computer and I'd play the game for three hours because you see, I could rule that universe. I could rule that soccer league. U.S. didn't even have a soccer league back then, so all the teams were even made up. And I gave them colors and names. It was really my world. And I loved being in my world because I didn't have to deal with the difficulties. I didn't have to, to talk about my day that didn't go well. I didn't have to stress over the checkbook that had mostly zeros with no numbers before it. I didn't have to stress over these things. I could rule in my own little world. the same thing's true with pornography what i want how much i want and how i want it have it your way could be the theme of our world today we're fascinated it's not just young men with video games we're fascinated aren't we facebook and social media now i'm not gonna i'm not gonna just i'm not gonna sit here and go on a rant about social media all right Okay, I might hurt some feelings if I do, but let me just say this. What have we created? Our own little universe where we can put forth the face that we want everyone to look at. It is a Facebook. We don't want anybody looking into the regular book of our life, so we're going to put a face on this book and we're going to put it here. So everyone can see how normal we really are how good we are, we get excited that someone likes what we say. That's narcissism. We get pumped because we get new followers. Doesn't the word follower really worry you? Oh, I've got a new follower. I've got 500 followers. Hmm. Sounds like a temptation that once happened on a mountain 2,000 years ago. We can get cyber empathy for our bruised egos in our bad days in our little world. We can rule on Facebook. We can even shoot down other people's comments and posts without actually having to see how much pain it causes them. Because we're digitally separated. Virtual power. Digital prestige fed by our pride. And we've all become experts, haven't we? The blogging world that we live in today, I mean, it amazes me. You type in any subject you want to search for in Google, and you can find a million opinions on it. And everyone's an expert. Everyone blogs about the wisdom they've acquired. Everyone's a theologian. Everyone's a politician. Everyone's a humanitarian. Everyone's a philosopher. Everyone's a comedian. Puffed up by knowledge and wisdom while never hearing the satanic whisper saying, you are, and there's no one besides you. You are. What is your kingdom? Our kingdoms come in so many different ways. It could be our our theological perspective. That's our kingdom. And anyone outside of it becomes an enemy. Um, It could be, bear with me, it could be homeschooling. Because we can control that. Out there in the scary public school, we can't control anything. We can control this. Y'all ask questions about our motives. Why are we doing this? Do I have a God-glorifying rest in God as I train my children? Or do I have an anxious non-trusting unbelieving heart that says i gotta fix my kids before they turn 18 and therefore i'm gonna take the reins and hold on at all costs what does our kingdom look like you see satan is happy to let the words kingdom and glory be relative for christ it was a big temptation all the kingdoms of the world but for us, he just has to put much smaller kingdoms in front of us. One of the cartoons my kids like to watch, and it's clean and it's funny, and I, I think it's hilarious, is Phineas and Ferb. All right? Have you ever seen Phineas and Ferb? It's, it's funny, it's got some very clever writing. But the, the evil character in this funny show, Dr. Doofenshmirtz, his desire, he always says he wants to rule the tri state area all right you see that's us we don't have to have the world just give me 500 facebook friends i'm good with that i don't have to have the world i mean just give me a family that does what i say just give me a wife who submits like she's supposed to doggone it just give me that right Just give me a husband who will really listen to me. I want that, God, and I'll do whatever I need to do to get it. Rule your home is the temptation. Don't lead your home. Rule your kids is the temptation. Don't train their hearts, but rule their behaviors. Rule your job. Become the top salesman at all costs. You want a kingdom? You can have it. Rule your church. Don't just feed it. Rule it. Without you, these morons would just wither away. Rule it. Right? You want a kingdom? It's yours. It's yours. Well, all I want is a spouse who loves and cares for me and supplies my needs. I deserve it. I demand it. I am and there's no one besides me. You want a kingdom? You can have it. Just bow down. Just bow down. It's yours. You say, wait a second. I'm not a Satan worshiper. There's no pentagrams on me. I don't wear dark clothes and listen to that music. I'm not a Satan worshiper. You know what? The only thing Satan needs to do to get you to become a Satan worshiper is to worship yourself. That's all he needs to do. To make you a person who has bowed his knee to satan all he's got to do is make you worship yourself that's the temptation you see it worked with eve she became a slave to a reptilian master once she put herself above god and so do we we want to rule now we want the life we deserve now we want what's normal i just want normal that's not bad is it right I mean the adversary is so crafty after all what's wrong with the knowledge of good and evil i mean what's wrong with knowledge of good and evil isn't that a good thing right oh he's crafty you see he'll tempt us to think that the power grab is what's best and most god-honoring which is my second point the enemy will try to convince us to exalt ourselves by justifying power prestige and possessions now This was quite a temptation, for Jesus had surely already become aware, at least in some part, of the sufferings that he must endure. Of the shame that was coming his way, of the mocking, the spitting, the taunting, the blaspheming, all directed at him. And then, that cup of torture and excruciating suffering that he was going to have to drink from. And here stands Satan saying, why go through all of that? You can have power now. With one simple act, Jesus could reign. After all, he was destined to reign, right? Why go through all of that? He could just take over the world now. Why deal with sin on the cross when he could just fix everything now? Surely as he saw the kingdoms in all their glory, he also saw the tyrants who ruled those kingdoms. Remember how Luke starts the baptism story? With a who's who list of world leaders who were wicked to the core. And with one simple bowing of the knee, they could all be out of power. With one simple bowing of the knee, slavery could be abolished. With one simple bowing of the knee, poverty could be eradicated. Tyranny could be punished. Injustices could be corrected. Yes, a simple concession, a simple compromise. One costly mean in order to justify a great good end. But Jesus knew that Satan was offering a theocratical ideal that sidestepped. God's plan and that God's plan included a bloody cross a bloody cross that Jesus would joyfully endure how many times have we justified our envy and our greed if I just had more possessions I would use them for good if I could just make 10,000 more dollars a year I could give to the church and I could, I could serve more people if I just made more money Right? If I just had a bigger house, we'd be more hospitable. We would. It's just that we have a tiny house. If we just had a bigger house, and we get angry, we get envious, why, why do rich people, why do greedy people get rich, God? Why do neglectful moms have babies, God? I want my child now. God, if you just give me whatever, I would use it for Jesus. Just let me rule, God, and I'll use it for Jesus. Just let me rule, God. Let me have control over my universe, and I'll do it for your glory. Beware of making a deal with the devil in order to do something good. Is this not what the church is tempted with week in and week out? Just adopt a little bit of the world. Just adopt a little bit of the world. It's okay for the sake of reaching the lost, right? The good intention outweighs the worldly means, right? Just a little bit of this and a little bit of that, spice it up, make it look cool, make us hip. And presto, the world will love us and more people will hear about Jesus. Church, beware. Believer, beware. This is a devilish game we're playing. Beware of using tactics of the God of this world. For his aim is to blind people from seeing the gospel. Could it be that our attempts to be attractive to the world actually keeps the world from seeing the gospel in the churches today? Could it be that our desperate attempt to be liked by the world and be attractive to the world I mean, I've got books in my office, book after book after book written about how Christians need to be better at communicating with the world? And it's, all it is is PR. Beware, church, of doing all we can to make the world love us because in doing so, we may be assisting the God of this world putting a veil over the gospel message. Because the Bible's clear. The gospel is what? It's offensive. No PR firm in the highest building of New York City can make the gospel attractive to this world. No one. Not the best spinmeisters in Washington. ...can make the gospel attractive to this world. It will always be offensive. And so be careful when Satan comes up and says... ...just just do this. It's going to... The ends justifies the means. For Jesus, this temptation to go ahead and make things right... ...and rule now... ...would come back and back over and over again in his ministry. This was Satan's voice behind the people. In John chapter 6, you remember after Jesus fed the 5,000... They want to what? Make him king. Rule, Jesus, right now. Reign. We're all your loyal subjects. That was Satan's voice. And I imagine that Satan was there whispering in the midnight shadows in Gethsemane as Jesus prayed, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And Satan's going, It is possible. Remember the mountain? I'll offer it to you again. But Jesus never wavered. For unlike us, he submitted fully to his Father's loving rule and said, not as I will, but as you will. He was unwilling to seize the kingdom now and instead entrusted himself to the Father. And he endured the cross and therefore God exalted him, giving him a name above all names. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father. But Satan is prowling around looking at our weaknesses, looking for some way to get us to justify our power grabs. For me, it comes in so many different ways. Sometimes for me, it comes in what really becomes, it's it's a hidden pride, if you will. You know, sometimes people who, who belittle themselves or just sort of always are down on themselves are just masking something much deeper, which is pride. Wanting to have people come up and say, oh, you're actually, you're good, you're great. I hear Satan's voice every Sunday when I'm tempted, when I feel like I've really just left a horrible message up here, just done a really, really bad job. The temptation comes for me to say, as I'm talking to someone oh that really wasn't a great message today oh yeah that was just why am I doing that I'm doing that because I'm a Satanist pride oh just get Missy to tell you oh no it was really a good message Mr. Steve it was good Good. yeah okay so no that's pride it's ego I'm wanting someone to stroke my ego And it's the same pride you guys deal with. Now, others, it manifests itself in much different ways. Sometimes it manifests itself in anxiety. Why do we worry about the future so much? Why do we worry about whether we're going to have food on the table, clothes to wear? We worry because we want to reign. I want to rule my life and know for certain there's going to be this, 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 and this. And therefore, I get anxious. I try to find my security somewhere else. You and I will sell our souls to the devil if we knew he could make everything turn out for our good. Get rid of all of our anxiety. Get rid of all of our fear. At its root, again, is pride. We don't trust the Father's plans. This is what Jesus spoke of. When Jesus speaks to the people in Matthew chapter 6, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. You know the passage in Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, where he tells them not to worry about your clothes. Not to worry about your food. And he tells them to look at the birds in the air. Okay, look, at the, look at the flowers in the field and look at how God clothes them. Look at how God feeds them. Don't worry about any of these things. Do you find it interesting that he finishes that statement with this? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. Why does he throw kingdom in there? Why doesn't he just say, just trust God, period. Just trust God for those things. He says, no, no, no. Seek the kingdom. Because when we worry about these things, we are setting ourselves up as little kings and queens. Because we want to make sure We have the food, and we have the clothes, and all these things that we so much want. And Jesus says, stop being a king. Stop trying to rule and reign. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God. He'll take care of everything else. All these other things will be added to you. It's the anxiety of James four thirteen. It says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and to spend a year there and trade and make profit. And yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. If you read... I encourage you to go home and read all of James chapter 4. Read all of James, but focus in on James chapter 4, because he talks about, it's almost just this sermon in one chapter. He talks about pride. He talks about submitting yourself to God. He talks about how to resist the devil. You see, it all comes down to the reality that we are arrogant. And we boast in our prideful arrogance, thinking that we're in control of our life, when in reality, we're not. If I could just rule my life, everything would be OK. Let me kind of bring us to a close by looking at what Jesus, how Jesus responds. Jesus says, "Begone, Satan, for it is written, "You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve." This is from Deuteronomy 6:13. Now This is from a passage of scripture where Moses is admonishing the people to worship God only. This is the famous Deuteronomy 6 passage with the Shema in it where he encourages, or not encourages, tells the fathers to pass on uh, the truths of God from one generation to the next and to serve God only. And he gets to this point in this chapter and he says this in verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you, with great food, I mean with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You see, Satan's temptation for us to rule doesn't usually come on a mountaintop with visions of all the kingdoms. It comes in the normal things we desire, it comes in the mundane routine of life, all the things we already possess, things given to us by God, a fact that we conveniently forget as we rule our little kingdoms. We fall in love with our kingdoms and we forget God. And his good gifts. You see, possessions have a way of doing that. We get them, and therefore we must keep them. And we are anxious about losing them, and we must add to them. We must rule. We become God ignoring idolaters. We pull the chilled milk out of our fridge without any thankfulness in our heart that we didn't have to go out and yank on a cow's udders for three hours to get it. We adjust the thermostat to keep us from sweating without even giving a thankful thought to the grace of God that it placed us here and not in a thatch hut in the middle of the Amazon. And the moment the conveniences begin to be taken away or they're in danger of disappearing or aren't as good as the newer, better conveniences advertised on our TV sets, which we probably haven't thanked God for either, we get anxious and we bow down to the idol of self-exalting, self-rule over our lives. I think one of the most interesting parables Jesus tells is in Luke chapter 14. It says this, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at, that time for the ban- at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. What's so interesting about this is that all these things that the people were fascinated with that kept them from coming into the restful, joy of being in the presence of God, were not bad things. Owning fields is not evil. Oxen are not evil. Marriage is not evil. But any earthly gift that we possess and thus we rule over that keeps us from submitting to the one who gave us those gifts can lead us to becoming self-exalting Satan worshipers. It's all about kingdoms. We are possessed by our possessions, and we therefore become little rulers over vanishing kingdoms that rust away into dust and ashes. All the while, our God is calling us to seek a higher kingdom, to seek first His kingdom. We are to pray that His kingdom come, His will be done. We should want and pray for Him to rule, for Him to reign, because we know what little power-hungry dictators we are. We have been in league with the serpent king. But if we are in Christ, then we have repented, and we must stop being kingdom takers and patiently become kingdom receivers. It was never ours to take, but the kingdom was a gift to be received. If we are in Christ, then, friends, we are heirs. He was meant to rule, and we were meant to rule with him, subordinate to him, but in perfect, loving submission to him. We don't take it by force. We receive it in meekness. For it is the meek who will inherit the earth, according to Matthew 5, 5. And according to Paul in, Romans, in 1 Corinthians 3, all things are ours. Romans eight thirty two says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We are heirs. We have an inheritance, this world. So why should we go after it now? Why should we grab it now? We give in to satanic self-exaltation. But we should do what Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time, at the proper time he may exalt you. Like Christ, our time, right now where we're at, right here and now, our time is not a time of rule and reign. We should be on a trajectory of humility, self-sacrifice, and service. We must not be the little dictator tyrants that Satan wants us to be. Paul says in Romans 8, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It doesn't end right there. The verse goes on and says, Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Christ suffered on our behalf, resisting temptation. So let us now suffer with him. For this world is nothing. Don't let Satan convince you to rule now. So here we are, cut to the heart. For we know how easily we often give in to Satan's temptations. We have failed in the desert with our Israelite forefathers over and over and over again. We have hidden in the bushes with our first parents in shame over and over and over again. But the good news is that here stands Jesus, in our place, as a substitute, resisting the devil, defeating the devil, putting an end to the ever-increasing pressure from his heel on that old snake's skull. Here he stands for the believer saying, Be gone, Satan! For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. With a word of command, he exercises his full authority over Satan. You see, Satan has two main jobs. Two main jobs. Number one, to stir up sin in our hearts which we are predisposed to give in to. And number two, to accuse us once we've sinned. He stirs us up to sin and then he accuses us before God. That's his power over us. But Jesus' heart was pure, without sin. There was nothing to stir up. And thus Satan had no grounds for accusation. And as Jesus would later say, the ruler of this world has no claim on me. And so the insurrectionists, we can be eye to eye with him, like my fearful friend and I were with Frank Vargas. And we can look at Satan eye to eye, and not based on anything that we've done because we would give in to every temptation he has to offer. But we can look at him eye to eye and in the power of Christ we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. According to the scriptures. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not be, let you be tempted beyond your ability But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. One of the most misquoted scriptures in the world, by the way, right there. God will not give you more than what you can bear. That's not what the scripture says. It says he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But wait a second here. What is your ability? Because if you're fallen, and I'm fallen, and you have a sinful corrupt nature and i have a sinful corrupt nature then my ability isn't very high and neither is yours god only has to i mean satan only has to put a little bitty kingdom in front of me and i fall i fold like a deck of cards so what is that verse promising that verse is spoken to believers who are in christ god will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but you know what believer If you're in Christ, then through the power of Christ, you can bear a lot. Not by your strength, by his. So don't use this verse in the way that I said last week where we misuse God's word, taking little promises out of context. Don't use this verse to say, well, God won't give me more than what I can bear. Therefore, this week won't get any worse. No, 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 no. Don't use it that way. Use it the way God intends for the text to be used. God will not let me be tempted beyond what I can bear. So as Satan brings that onslaught, and as I in my flesh am fearful and scared and know that I will cave because I I know I'm a self-exalting Satanist at heart, I can stand I can resist because I am in Christ and he did it for me. And therefore the power to resist Satan and the only reason he runs away scared like a little girl on Halloween is because Christ is there on my behalf standing and Satan has no power over him. That's why I can say, No temptation has seized me except what is common to man. And God will not let me be tempted beyond what I can bear. He will provide a way out so that we can stand up under it. Bring it on, Satan. Bring it on because we're in Christ. We are in Christ. We cave when we begin to trust in our strength. That's what being a little dictator is all about. When we step outside of the provision of Christ and we try to do things on our own, we cave. There's that sin again. Oh, God. Another week. Same sin. But friend, if you're in Christ, there's other good news. Don't let the accuser come up and say, Aha, told you so. Because the scriptures say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Get back up on your feet, warrior. Put on your shield of faith. Put on your helmet. Put on your breastplate. Grab your sword. Get back into the battle. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan has no grounds of accusation. Yeah, I screwed up. I committed the same sin again. I've been doing it all my life. But by God's grace, he's doing a work in me. And I'm seeing victory. Slowly but surely, he will bring victory. And if I never see it in this lifetime, I know that one day I'll have a perfected body that won't give in to these temptations anymore. Because I am in Christ. Therefore, Satan, yeah, you may have a long list of my sins, but guess what? They've been erased by the blood of Jesus Christ. You therefore have no condemnation against me. For God is for me. Who can be against me? And we are more than conquerors in Him. So don't be afraid. Believer, don't be afraid. Satan is a neutered enemy for the believer, he has no power over us. Don't be afraid. Bow our heads. And close our eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask for your grace and your mercy to be upon our time here. But I I just, I just know how weak I am and how weak we all are. And God, I I just, I'm afraid even as we, we, we journey through a passage of scripture like this, Lord, that we just, We have such a hard time understanding that that Jesus has done all of this on our behalf. And yes, Satan's still going to be attacking us every day. Every day he brings these same three temptations into our life. And Lord, I'm just reminded that in Christ we have victory. Not only does Satan have no grounds for accusation against us, even when we fail, but also through the Spirit... Provision has been made, and that if we'll put on Christ and put off the world, we'll see victory. It'll be coming, it'll be happening in our life. God, I know there are besetting sins in this room, there are besetting sins in my life. And so, Jesus, I desperately need you. I will never defeat these besetting sins. Oh, Lord, we could have a thousand accountability groups. But if we can lie to you, how hard is it to lie to our accountability group? We need Jesus. Oh, Lord, I believe you can use tools like accountability groups. And the, but we need your word so infused into our life and the power of Christ so present in our life that we can walk through the wilderness of this world with all the wild animals and know That in Christ, we are safe. In Christ, there's no accusation. And in Christ, there is power. Power to overcome. Power to resist. And Satan will flee. So Lord, I pray for your help. Pray for your forgiveness, Lord, for any missteps that I've made today in the message. And just ask, Lord, that you take the mess that I made, and make it a message that benefits the hearts of those here at Harvins. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.